We'll hear argument next in number 9487-29. The spectators are admonished not to talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Herpel, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, on an October evening in 1988, petitioner's husband, John Bennis, was arrested for having illicit sex with a prostitute in one of the Bennis family automobiles, and Detroit police seized the automobile. Both Tina Bennis's interest in the vehicle and her husband's interest were declared forfeit under a Michigan nuisance abatement statute. The Michigan Supreme Court rejected petitioner's claim that the due process and takings clauses protected her and innocent owner from forfeiture. Mr. Herfel, will you tell us uh, what the record shows was the nature of the ownership in the automobile in question? The record shows that the, the vehicle was co-owned, that is, it was co-titled. In, what, in what kind of ownership under state law? I, Joint I, with right of survivorship, co-tenants, what was it? Your Did Honor, you know? I, it, it's, it's uh, a heavily regulated area, and I attempted to ascertain which common law joint property inter interest this most closely resembled. Uh, I, I found nothing definitive on that, but you I You can't believe, tell us? I believe it's, a, it's close to a tenant in common. It, How it, is the automobile titled? The automobile is titled uh, in their name, but there, there's no... In both names yes. or one name? In both names. In Michigan law, can one co-owner dispose of good title to the automobile? I believe that that is true, Your Honor. That, that uh, one, Not for the entire automobile. One co The entire automobile? No, I believe could, that... Could both, one owner dispose of it? I do not believe so, uh, Justice. Okay. But you can't give us any citations or anything like that, or any place in the record where we could ascertain the nature of the ownership? I'm sorry, I, I cannot, Your Honor. But well, I, it makes it very difficult, doesn't it, to decide uh, this case when we don't know the nature of the ownership or what rights a single co-owner would have? Well, I, I think it... I, I'm quite certain that the... the uh, the sole co-owner does not have the right to sell the entire vehicle. That that, that much I'm certain of. That, that both signatures would be required to, to dispose of the... can't give us a case or a statute or anything of that sort. I cannot. No. Are we supposed to assume... I wondered the same thing. I thought maybe we're, that we should take an assumption that the, uh, that the uh, Supreme Court of Michigan... Did the Supreme Court make an assumption namely the assumption that the ownership interest of your client was such that, that, that she had an interest that otherwise couldn't be touched. It was her property. She had an undivided interest or some interest that, that uh, was totally hers. That much I, I'm quite so sure. So what kind of assumption should we make? What kind of assumption did they make? Well, I, I think that they clearly made an assumption that, that she had a separately protectable interest in this car. Uh, so for which even if she had, uh, it was just like totally separate property under Michigan law. She has under Michigan law something that's a 50% separate interest, whatever that might mean. Uh, yes, I, I would say... Well, I'm looking for the same thing. What kind of Again, I, I would analogize it to a, a tenancy in common. Like a tenancy in common. She had the interest that one joint owner in a tenancy in common would have her one tenant. Does one usually hold cars by Tennessee by in common? Isn't yeah, what is it in Michigan? But in any event, he is at least 
half owner. And you can't impound half a car. And you can't sell at an auction half a car. So in effect, your position seems to be that she, because she is half owner, can immunize him against having his property taken. Is that essentially your position? Uh, no, Justice Ginsburg, we're not contending that the state has no power to, to forfeit the vehicle. What, what we are saying is, is they cannot do so without compensating Tina Bennis, the innocent owner, for well, her why interest. Can, but you're not saying it would be enough to give her whatever pittance was left from this sale after administrative expenses. Well, I, I would, we would contend, Your Honor, that the so-called administrative expenses, uh, attorney's fees, prosecutorial attorney fees, and uh, court costs and Detroit police costs are not properly assessable uh, against her interest. That, 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 that as a matter of constitutional law, that it is improper to assess those costs against her. Is it all right for the state to say this vehicle is a public nuisance because of its use? Well, the, the, court, uh, the court certainly exceeded traditional uh, notions of what constitutes a public nuisance. But it, didn't it, suppose, suppose it had been his car entirely. Couldn't they have, would there be anything unconstitutional about the forfeiture? I don't think the court has to find that in, in this case, Your Honor. That well, we've they, held in any number of cases that, 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 that there's not, that something that's used in the course of committing a felony can be forfeited. I agree, Your Honor, and, and I, I only hesitated because the Michigan Supreme Court applied an extremely novel interpretation of nuisance law, but I, I don't want to be sidetracked uh, on that issue because the, the, the focus here is on the forfeitability of her interest in, in the car. Just before we get too far away from the answer to Justice Ginsburg's question, if the state can forfeit the husband's interest, and in your position, it has to remit uh, to the wife uh, her interest. I, I take it that's your position? Yes, it is, Justice Kennedy. Uh, does the state uh, have to compensate the wife for the loss of use of the property, uh, her, her portion of the property, while the forfeiture proceedings were being conducted? Your Honor, I, I guess that gets into the issue of, of whether uh, pre-hearing seizure uh, is appropriate, which is not presented in, in this case, it, it, uh, assuming that, that pre-hearing seizure, which is what was accomplished here, uh, is appropriate, I, I don't know that she would have a, a claim for the loss of, of use of the vehicle in that interim period, uh, if that is your question. But doesn't that indicate the necessity of having a forfeiture provision uh, such as this? I'm afraid I don't understand your question, Justice Kennedy. Well, if, if, if the most efficient way, if the only efficient way for the state to enforce its laws, let's say, is to forfeit the offending vehicle, uh, then the forfeiture system uh, is adequate, and all you're asking for is that the wife's financial interest in the automobile, uh, represented by her half of the equity, uh, be returned to her. Is that, is that your position? That's the, the position that we're taking in this case, Your Honor. And in this case, it's a 1977 automobile? That is correct. What That's kind it. of automobile? It was a Pontiac sedan. And her interest would be about what, would you say? Well, uh, presumptively, it would be 50% of, uh, of the, the, the 
resale value of, of the car. I, I believe the car was purchased approximately, the record will show that it was purchased approximately one month before the, the forfeiture. And uh, she did testify that she provided most of the, the purchase money for the car, that there may be an opportunity to rebut the presumption of, of 50 percent. Uh, and how much remit. was paid for it? Does the record tell us that? Uh, $600. So we're talking sir. about a claim of $300 for her. Yes, at least $300. Mr. Herpel, you referred to your client as an innocent owner, and uh, how, how do you define innocent owner for these purposes? Well, Your Honor, the, uh, there are, we propose a, a standard for defining innocence uh, that, that we term the negligent entrustment standard, and, and which, which focuses on whether the owner knew or should have known of the uh, impending illegal use. Uh, there, the Solicitor General has, has proposed an alternative standard. We, we contend that uh, she would prevail under either standard, either the, the all-reasonable-step standard proposed by the Solicitor General or the negligent uh, entrustment standard, which focuses on uh, whether the owner knew or had reason to know of the illegal use. Let's assume the standard is, is negligence. What could she have done? What if she knew, in this case, that her husband was likely to resort to prostitutes using the car? Would she have had a right to stop him from using it? Well, I think the standard that, that we advocate focuses... Well, would she have had a right to stop him from using it? Uh, not post-entrustment, Your Honor. It, it, well, she didn't have to entrust it. It's half his car. Uh, but if, if, if the time of entrustment is deemed to be the time... Well, the joint why is there an entrustment? He's half an owner. Uh, I agree that after the creation of the joint property interest, there, there formally can be no entrustment. Okay. Let's uh, assume but, we're at that point and she finds out that he's doing these things on the way home, she would have had no right to stop him from using the car, would she? <laughs> That's correct. What, what should she have done in order to satisfy a negligence standard? Should she have called the police and said, look out for this car, my husband may be doing bad things in it? Uh, are, I we mean, I, are we here, assuming... If we're going to have a negligence standard, does, does, how, how would it be well, applied here? Your, your Honor, if, if, if I may, I'd just like to digress briefly that the... Uh, the, the focus is, is on the time of entrustment, which in a joint ownership situation, I think, would be deemed the time the joint property interest is created. Now, if she, if she should have known at that time that, that he was a scoundrel, uh, that, that would suffice. Yes. I, I think if she knew of, of, of the impending illegal use at that time. Now, post-entrustment... Uh, and, and specifically the impending illegal use. It can't be enough that this is not a really reliable, reliable person that I wouldn't trust a car with. Lord knows what he'll do with it. Uh, Justice Scalia, I, I think it should be specific to, to the illegal use that, that gives rise to the forfeiture uh, under the statute. But in any case, in this case, um, is there any evidence in the record that she knew at the time the purchase, that the car was purchased, that he might use it in this fashion? No, to, to the contrary. So that your position is going to be, if you win this case, that that's the end of the case, that there is no evidence of... Uh, of negligence at that time, and therefore what she may have learned, even if she had known post-purchase, would be irrelevant, uh, and that that's the end of the case. She's entitled to her 50% share. Certainly that's true in this case, because the, the record shows that there is no knowledge at any time uh, up, until the time of, up until the time of illegal use. But, I, it, the, you know, the court could pose cases... Uh, hypotheticals right. in which somebody acquired knowledge after entrustment. May I ask and you a, a different question? Um, uh, let's assume that at the time of the purchase, she knew 
but she was not putting up any of the money. And he simply said, I'm buying this car, and I want the title issued and so on, the registration issued uh, to my wife and, and to me. And he says to her, uh, you have a half interest in the car. Can that half interest uh, be, be taken from her uh, uh, on, the, on, on the assumption that she knew at that time what he was likely to do with the car? I would think it can be taken. What should she have done? She had, no, she had no role in the purchase of the car, and she had no role in the transfer of a 50% interest to her. What should she have done? Well, if, if, uh, if, if she had... Easy come, easy go is your answer to that one, I think. Uh, <laughs> it could, could well be, uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, I think that... Uh, you answered a question. You said this vehicle was purchased for $600, so that the, what we're talking about, you, you have conceded she doesn't get the car. The state can take the car. So as a matter of constitutional right, your argument is she's entitled to half the value. Well, if she bought it, they, the total price was $600, and they had it even for a day, then the value is less than $600, isn't it? Well, I, I guess it depends on, on how good a bargain they struck uh, initially, Your Honor. But uh, certainly that $600 is, is evidence of, of its value. I don't know that it's, it's conclusive evidence that perhaps... When you, when you said at least... 600 or at, at least, least 300, that means you're assuming they made a good, very good bargain. Well, I guess what I was referring to there, Your Honor, is I think in a, a tenancy in common situation, which I analogize this to, uh, the, there's a presumption... Why do you say joint tenancy? Why do you pick the phrase tenancy in common? Because I, I don't believe there are rights of survivorship that, that attach uh, under the Michigan uh, auto, automobile uh, registration. Statute. So suppose that a, a state had a, a statute which said that any registered owner of an automobile is absolutely liable for damage that the automobile does in a collision, and the husband gets, gets in a collision. Uh, is, the, is, the, is the wife subject to liability consistently with the Constitution? Well, I, I think the court has taken for granted the constitutionality of those so-called uh, civil liability statutes for, for, uh, for automobile owners. Why, why should this case be different? It's different in, in two critical respects, Justice Kennedy. First, uh, such statutes arise in, in the tort system uh, and are designed not to punish, but simply to shift losses so as to facilitate recoveries, uh, tort uh, recoveries by plaintiffs to compensate for injury. Second, and then perhaps most important, uh, generally speaking, the state would, would not be the plaintiff in such an action, it's in, and the, the full machinery of the state, with its potential for, for oppression, is not arrayed against the individual. Well, the, state, the state's the one that passed the statute. There's clearly state action in my hypothetical. Isn't, isn't the liability that the wife is subject to in my hypothetical much greater, potentially, uh, than the liability here? The liability here is limited to the amount of the, her interest in the automobile. So the liability is greater, Your Honor, and, and, and there is state action of the kind recognized in Shelley v. Kramer and in New York Times v. Sullivan. But I, I think that that, that is really a uh, – this type of state action is quite a bit different. I mean, a, a civil law – providing a forum in the, in the way of a civil – uh, lawsuit providing a forum for private parties to well, mediate. We're, we're asking about the validity of the statute. There's no, don't, don't. I, I wouldn't be uh, deterred by the state action. You just, you just have to assume that there is a constitutional defense against strict liability if there is an overreaching on the part of the state by enacting the statute. You seem to assume that the statute that I gave you was 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 quite proper. And I want to know what the difference is between the two cases. 
Well, again, I'd, I'd emphasize, Your Honor, that that, 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 that that statute does not impose punishment, and, and more importantly... Ah, so it's punishment. And, and, and the state is not benefiting in a pecuniary sense. The, the, the full power and machinery of the state is not being arrayed against an individual. Now, in, in the vicarious it's liability... It's not being arrayed against the individual, at least in, in, in the early forms of the common law. It's being arrayed against the thing, the, the, the car. That is correct, Your Honor, and, and I think the court, the court took an opportunity in, in Austin two terms ago to begin to decrease reliance on, on the so-called guilty property fiction that, that is associated with, with, with that, and I think the court should continue to uh, de-emphasize reliance on, on, on that antiquated notion. In the Admiralty area as well as in the automobile area? Uh, no, Justice Kennedy, not necessarily. I think classic in-rem forfeiture, as, as indicated in the brief, arose in the admiralty and, and customs area, and, and it arose because of a difficulty in obtaining in personam jurisdiction uh, over, uh, say, owners of, of vessels. In order, in order for the government to satisfy claims uh, against a vessel owner... And it could hold it until the claim was satisfied, couldn't it, and then, and then re- re-deliver the ship to the person who... Right? Well, it, but it didn't do that. You couldn't redeem the ship. It seized the ship. It was gone. If the owner was a uh, was not a United States national, I, I don't know that that would be a practicable solution. Wasn't there a very Why? ancient idea that the thing was indeed the wrongdoer? I think you acknowledged that in your brief. The I'm thing sorry? here is de- declared the car is declared a public nuisance. I'm sorry, I didn't uh, hear your question. Isn't there... You are... You are saying the thing was only security for the claim because you couldn't get personal jurisdiction over the individual. But there was an ancient notion that the thing itself is the wrongdoer. As Michigan calls it here, the thing, the car, is a public nuisance. Well, that, that's the guilty property fiction. That, the that deal there. Yes, and the, the idea that an inanimate object, can, can you can ascribe guilt to, to an inanimate object. But I, I, I think that... And you say that notion is no longer valid at all? Well, I, I think it's a... Uh, it, it is a... Uh, it's a rather obsolete notion. It, it's one that, that is... Uh, it, it's a convenient rationale for use of, of the civil forfeiture power. Uh, and I suggested that... the that process, but is no longer. Is that, is that it? I, Your Honor, I, I think that... Well, didn't we civil say in Austin that never took hold in the United States? That was an English fiction. The, the Diodan? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did say that about the Diodan. In fact, it, we, we, I guess we, uh, what the court said in, in Austin was, was that the, uh, the Diodan, which actually was rejected by the English Parliament, I believe, by, act, by an act in 1846, did not take hold here. And, and what, uh, instead, this, the practice uh, here has really derived from the English navigation statutes. And, it, and once again... Uh, that the law review literature, the historical literature, suggests that those English navigation acts were based on the difficulty in obtaining in personam jurisdiction over owners. The, um, and uh, cargo, and, and in some cases, ships were seized to satisfy claims arising out of, out of customs violations. That would be a good argument in every case except one involving a car. Don't you have the same problem with the car? I don't think so. Well, let's assume you have a negligent owner who negligently entrusted it, as, as you're willing to acknowledge, would, uh, would, would render him properly punishable. Uh, why can't the state say, I'm not going to go running down where the owner is. I'm going to grab the car. He can come back and make his argument that he wasn't negligent. But meanwhile, you know, I think he's negligent. I'm taking his car. Well, the, the, Your Honor... Like a ship. The state has a... The automobiles 
uh, registration and titling of, of automobiles is, is heavily regulated. We, we actually use paper title uh, in, 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 I believe, in every state for, for car ownership. Uh, Out-of-state car. And, and why should Michigan have to go run into some other... It's going to say, if there's a crime committed in a car, we think cars are like ships in that regard. We're just going to grab the car. We'll sort it all out later. Your Honor, I, I, don't, I don't accept the analogy because I, it seems to me that, that the, there are other remedies available to the state. In fact, in this case, the state pursued a separate criminal action How does against, this relate against John to Dennis. the many cases where the vehicle that's carrying the contraband is taken? Now, the, the federal government is heavily into that business, too. Does your argument mean that every time a car is found loaded with drugs, that if there is a co-owner... And then the, the owner, owner has to be compensated for the confiscation of the vehicle that carries the contraband, boat, car. If, if the assumption of your hypothetical is that the co-owner neither knew nor should have known of, of the illegal but use... We're not dealing with this unusual Michigan statute making cars public nuisances. Uh, you, your argument would cover the waterfront of all the uh, confiscation of vehicles carrying contraband. Is that not right? Well, or, or used for some illegal purpose. I, I, I want to emphasize, however, that it, my standard does not address the forfeitability of proceeds realized from, from illegal activity. Well, how, is, with how is your theory consistent with what this court upheld in Calero Toledo? Uh, the leasing of uh, a yacht and uh, the people who leased it had marijuana on board, and the lessor didn't know that. In fact, it even included provisions in the lease agreement that that wouldn't be done. And yet the forfeiture was upheld. Now, how would your theory play out there? Uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, the court in Calero Toledo did reach the uh, facial challenge. It rejected the facial challenge to the Puerto Rican statute, but the, the court never decided whether uh, the uh, yacht owner uh, did or did not satisfy the negligence prong of, of, the, of the dicta. And uh, if, if you're asking me, I don't know that there was enough of a factual development in that case to really answer your question. Um, the well, certainly the court upheld uh, the seizure and the, uh, against a, the forfeiture against a takings claim by the owner. They did, but there is a bit of an ambiguity in, in the court's resolution of the as-applied challenge, assuming that there wasn't an as-applied challenge. Well, in any event, it, under your theory, it would not be possible to uphold a forfeiture in the uh, Calero Toledo well, situation. Well, I, 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 if the facts were that at the time of entrustment, uh, the yacht leasing company didn't know. Neither knew the, nor the should have known. The people leasing it were going to have marijuana on board. Yes, and I think it was Justice Douglas's dissent in that case pointed out that it was uh, two marijuana cigarettes. Yeah, and it was a dissent. That's correct. There was also, there was also a, a statement which I had here that they made a point of the fact that no allegation has been made or proof offered that the owner did all that it reasonably could to have avoid having its property put to an unlawful use. And then there was a suggestion in dicta that had that been done, that they might have reached a contrary result. Am I reading it correctly? 
Yes, Your Honor. I, I think that, that there's a, a sense in which there was a procedural default in, in, in that case. Why, was it, why is there suggesting that a contrary result would be reached? Because earlier in that case, hadn't it been said we've never found that, uh, that there was any kind of fault requirement, that there was any kind of innocent owner, in, innocent objection? Didn't, wasn't there first that general statement? Well, the court did a, a, a rather... Uh, uh, lengthy historical analysis of, of uh, Diodans, but I, I think, Your Honor, what's, what's critical here is that the court in Austin uh, did its own historical analysis and, and concluded that, that forfeiture has traditionally served, at least in part, as punishment for personal culpability. Uh, and, and, and I think that that history... Does it follow from your argument that there cannot be any criminal punishment uh, without uh, at least negligence? You could have no, no, uh, it's absolute liability, absolute criminal liability? In any See, context? if your corporation does such a thing, you will be fined so much money, period. Well, Up to you to make sure it doesn't, we don't care how careful you've been, absolute liability. Is, it doesn't that follow from your argument? In the, limited to the forfeiture context or outside? What's the difference whether it's a forfeiture or a fine? I mean, well, it seems to me the essence of your argument is you shouldn't punish somebody who hasn't been, who hasn't been blameworthy. If you can punish him by, cannot punish him by a forfeiture, why can you punish him by a fine? Well, it, it's, it's really a, a species of vicarious uh, punitive liability that we're talking about here, not just strict liability, Justice Scalia. And, and vicarious liability uh, punitive liability or vicarious criminal liability is, is as a very narrow uh, occupies a very narrow niche in, in our legal tradition. Now, in the corporate it's a area, high, highly regulated industries and aren't automobiles one of the most highly regulated uh, in, uh, forms of instrumentalities in our whole system? Well, in the corporate area, uh, I, I think in a, in a case called New York Central, the, the court did recognize that, that a corporation. Uh, which, which, after all, can only speak through its, its, uh, its agents, it can only speak and think through its agents, can be uh, liable, and, and some have regarded that as, as a form of a vicarious criminal liability. But vicarious criminal liability outside the corporate context is exceedingly rare uh, in our jurisprudence. Oh, do we look it, at this as criminal liability here? Well, I, I is think... Is that how we should analyze it? I think we... We have to view it as a punitive. The sanction is punitive. The Austin decision makes that absolutely clear. The sanction of forfeiture is punitive. And earlier decisions of this court, in, in 1958 Plymouth Sedan, uh, which held that the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule applies to civil forfeiture proceedings, and United States uh, coin and currency, which held that the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination applies to forfeiture, have treated forfeiture as criminal or quasi-criminal. Is so it I at think least possible that in the context of joint ownership of an automobile by a husband and wife that we should presume knowledge by each as to the use by the other? I don't think we and should. And then put any burden uh, on the innocent spouse to prove otherwise? Your Honor, the, uh, if this is a presumptive taking uh, under the takings clause, as we contend it is, then, then as a matter of straightforward constitutional analysis, the burden of proving any exception to the requirement to pay compensation would have to lie with the state. Well, I understand it. You, wouldn't, you don't agree that mere knowledge would be enough anyway. I'm Do you? sorry? You don't agree that mere knowledge by one spouse that the other was going to use or was using uh, the vehicle uh, in, in a way here that would constitute a nuisance would be sufficient fall. 
Well, I think at, at the time of entrustment... You're saying it has to be knowledge at the time they bought the car. Or, or if, it, if it's a case of solely owned property simply being loaned, that, that would be the... Oh, but that's a case in which there's a right of control. The problem comes because there's no right of control here. Well, that's right, Your Honor. I presume there is none under uh, Michigan law. Certainly, uh, and that's why at the time of entrustment, I said, I mean, at the time of the creation of the joint property interest, one could say there's, there may be an element of control over whether you enter the would joint... Would it satisfy your position if the state law were... When there's this joint ownership situation, the court is going to make the wrongdoing owner pay the other one. It's not going to come out of the state's pocket, not out of the people's pocket. But if she wants to bring a claim against him, he's going to have to pay. How about that? That would take care of her need, compensating her. You're, you're postulating that she would have a remedy in a court of law against against. The state John? says she ought to be compensated. The car was a nuisance. He ought to compensate well, her. Your Honor, it seems to me that it's hardly reasonable after Tina Bennis, an innocent owner, has been punished by having her property interest confiscated. And the wrong to then, to then tell her that her remedy is, is to go into a court of law and sue her husband. At that point, you're, you're in the realm of divorce. Well, when you're talking about a wife it's bringing an before, action yeah. against a... Uh, so it me? would be all right... It's not before. <laughs> I would have thought she'd rather sue her husband than sue Michigan. I, I don't... Uh... <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Herpel. Thank you. Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I would, if, if you would allow me, like to go through some of the questions that have been asked because I think those questions, at least in my opinion, encompass the position that the state of Michigan has brought in this case. Could you address the nature of the ownership of this vehicle, if you can enlighten us? The record, Justice O'Connor, does not indicate, as Mr. Herpel indicated to the court, exactly what this is, but in my understanding of the law of Michigan, as we can see, I think, from the record presented, when there's a vehicle co-owned by a husband and wife, in order to dispose of that, for example, at sale, private sale, both individuals have to sign the title to do that. Could the creditors of one of the spouses reach the entire vehicle? And yes, I believe they could under Michigan law in this situation. Yes. A creditor could take the whole vehicle? That's correct, because of the liability of ownership of a vehicle in the state of Michigan under our laws and the way they've been interpreted puts upon each owner liability for the use or negligence or misuse of that vehicle. Do you have a citation for us for that? I have a citation to the statute that was referred to by, I believe it was Justice Scalia, MCL 257.401, and that's mentioned in our brief. That is the liability statute for Michigan motor vehicles, whereby if an, an individual is entrusted with your vehicle and commits an injury upon another, you, as an owner or co-owner, innocent or otherwise, may be held liable for any of the injuries or damages. What, what, about, indicate I, that, uh, what about an ordinary creditor? I, I just have a, a, a judgment against the husband for something completely unrelated to the automobile. Uh, can I levy on the wife's interest in the automobile? They can I mean, levy on the automobile, Justice Kennedy, but I'm not certain how the proceedings would apply as to her interest. But what we're concerned with here... It would be very strange if you could levy on the wife's interest, and I thought that was the thrust of Justice O'Connor's question. I'm, that, I'm not certain as to what the answer is to that, but we're getting, I think, beyond the facts that we have presented here where we're concerned with the police power of the state of Michigan in a nuisance context in regards to Mrs. Bennis's... Am I correct in assuming, uh, Mr. Roberts, that your position on the constitutional issue would be exactly the same if she was the sole owner of the vehicle? Yes, it would. So we really but, don't need to worry about this half-ownership business, do we? 
in, in your view of the case? I, I would not say that we would not have to worry about it. I think we're concerned with it because we're here today. I think we should be concerned because we have to reaffirm, I believe, the police powers of the state in this type of nuisance abuse. Yeah, but you say they're the same even if she owned the car. That's correct. So your position doesn't rest on the right to control the car. Control she was the sole owner. Presumably, she has a right to control its use. That's correct. Uh, if she is simply a common owner, uh, as against the other common owner, I assume she does not have any right. That's to control. correct. So control is irrelevant on, on your theory. Control. That in, that's true, as Justice Stevenson. So Stevenson's does your theory, if there's no right to control as an element of your theory, is your theory basically uh, the kind of antique theory that this is the guilty object? That, may, that is part of the theory. The, the what, object, what, what else? Well, the object is the method whereby the nuisance conduct was committed. The statute, the police power statute, the nuisance abatement law, aims at the use of an item, be it a building, a boat, an aircraft, a, a place, even places named. Well, that's it. what makes it a nuisance. Then the, and it is an individual committing certain types of conduct, which is the nuisance in that. Right, but you're saying once the object has been used to create the nuisance, your right to, to, to require, your right to go after it on a forfeiture proceeding rests in, a, in essence on the theory that it is a guilty object in, in, the, in the old common law sense, the Diodan sense. A guilty object in the sense that the conduct that the law is aimed at abating was committed with the use of that, be it in or, or the vehicle perhaps takes, taking an individual it's tool. It's a stolen vehicle? Suppose it's a stolen vehicle. Then that would be outside the scope of this, and that was mentioned in the Michigan Supreme Court opinion in this matter. How stolen about vehicle. a car rental? A car, car rental. Again, then we would get to the point of control. Rental car. And car rental. Under your theory, the state would take the car if the person renting the car committed the unlawful act in the car. The state would take the car but would not be able to forfeit the car. Why not? The distinction is made at the stage whereby it's determined that the car is a rental car that the rental company had no control over, nor could they have been party to. But, but you just told me that control is irrelevant. That didn't matter. But in this situation, I'm talking about an application of the law to a situation that is outside the scope of a husband or a wife being a coroner. No, but I want to know what the theory, and this is Justice O'Connor was saying, what is the theory of, of the state's right to forfeit? And a moment ago, if I understood you correctly, you said it has nothing to do with the question whether the so-called innocent claimant has a right to control or not. And now you are saying, I think, that it does depend on the right to control because the answer is different in the case of the stolen car and the answer is different in the case of the rental car. Is control relevant or isn't it? Control is relevant only to the extent that the statute, we have to think, uh, is aimed at the strict liability of those who own a motor vehicle. So ownership and control are relevant in that sense. And well, can a leasing company owns the vehicles that it leases. That's correct, but they have no control over its use. Once it goes away, there's it's no way that they could find out. Or but I think exactly. Justice Souter's point is that the wife has no control over the use either. She can't prevent her husband from using it if it's commonly owned. That's correct. Then why shouldn't the wife be in exactly the same position as the car renter uh, or, or the, the person from whom the car was stolen? Because she could, although perhaps... Uh, Farfetch indicate to the other person using the car. Perhaps she loaned the car to an individual. She could say, I she don't didn't, want She didn't lend it to her husband. He owns half of it. He I has the right that. to drive it. I she has, as I understand it, she has no right of control. Why, therefore, isn't she in the same position as the renter uh, or the victim of the theft? Because she doesn't, she doesn't have the control over the car that they do in the sense. It doesn't make any sense, Mr. Roberts. Has your state Supreme Court held that, that, that Hertz is off the hook? They've indicated that in the opinion. They have? Yes. That's Where? 
I don't have the exact page in there. I'm indicating that uh, I think the interpretation of the opinion would be that that's exactly the situation. But again, let me be sure your position is the same. If she owned the car 100%, correct, you could still forfeit it? You would say there's a distinction be between her as a 100% owner right. and Hertz as a 100% owner. Right. Could, could you give us the citation of the Hertz case later? I mean, just, just submit it to the court. I'd, I'd like to know what that is. Certainly, Justice. Well, is that a passage in the opinion in this case or another case? No, I, I was indicating that I feel from reading the Supreme Court opinion, you can deduce that that's what they're In this case? In this yes. case? Yeah, that's oh, what I thought you But I'm not, I, they did not specifically go right. through all the possible situations because they were saying this is a police power matter. And but these questions we're raising go to questions of the application of Michigan law rather than the ultimate constitutional issue. And I'm curious to know whether you think there's a difference as a matter of constitutional law between an owner such as a wife giving the car to her husband and a theft, a theft of the car. In either event, uh, the person doesn't have control of what happened in the car. As a matter of constitutional law, could a stolen car be forfeited if the police catch someone with marijuana in the car or engaged in an act of prostitution? It would be liable to come into the forfeiture proceedings, I don't believe it would be forfeited, no, because of the... I'm not asking about what Michigan will do. I'm asking about your constitutional theory. We have a constitutional question to decide. Do you think as a matter of constitutional law, Michigan would have the right to forfeit stolen vehicles when, they're, uh, when they are found to be used in an illicit manner? I think, I think that that's possible. I don't have that. I did not address that, and it's not a situation we have here. But do you, no, what, what do you think the answer is? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Thank you. Why, why should a person uh, who's totally innocent, who has done whatever they could do uh, to stop the crime, uh, who has no knowledge of it, etc., be punished by having to give up their property? There's a case, uh, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, was mentioned in our brief, and in that case, as the court is aware, there's an absolute duty on the railroad carrier to comply with the Safety Appliances Act. And in that case, as I recall reading, the railroad carrier put forth that he had done, he wasn't aware that the cars were out of repair, he had done everything reasonable to comply, and yet he was held responsible for the violation. Yeah, I, 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 I agree that there are cases. That okay. was why I put the question the way I did. There are pirates, there are smugglers, there are bootleggers, and interestingly enough, there are corporate shareholders. But each of these may be special situations. So I know there are cases, so that's when maybe the corporations are special, given that they are people, persons, etc. But uh, why? Is there any reason why a person who is totally innocent should be punished for a criminal offense by having to give up the property that he or she owns? You're I know there are those cases. The cases are a question of, are, is that the only reason that when there were 18th century pirates, People were really worried about pirates for good cause, and they had to impose upon the owners of the ships enormous ob affirmative obligations to try to stop pirates. We don't have as many pirates now, at least. <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, is there any reason other than this, these historical facts well, which have changed to a degree, or are there some good reasons? I, if I could, I'd address some of the uh, assumptions in the hypothet that there is a punishment and there was punishment for a criminal offense. Mrs. Bennis, first of all, we maintain if there was punishment, it was incidental to the regulatory aim of this police power. And the criminal offense was committed by her husband and not Mrs. Bennis. She is subject to the civil liability of this civil law when it's applied properly with due process. 
simply because she's an owner of the vehicle and gave permission or did not give permission to use the vehicle. That's why, in this situation, an individual can be held liable for the acts of another and the use of the vehicle as long as all the constitutional protections have been given them. And here we had a court of equity, which by the record shows that she was afforded all those protections. Is it a, is it a civil penalty that's being imposed? We, we maintain it is, Justice O'Connor, yes. A civil penalty. Civil it's not a public nuisance abatement. It is a public nuisance abatement, but the penalty is... Is the car a public nuisance? The car is the vehicle that was used to perpetuate the condition. Is the car the public nuisance? Under the language of the statute and the way it's been interpreted, yes, because buildings have been found... But that's a very strange uh, interpretation of the meaning of public nuisance. Normally, you think of it as an ongoing uh, something that constitutes the nuisance. In this situation, as the record reveals and the transcript shows, there were several witnesses that testified that the ongoing situation of nuisance, the prostitution activities in this neighborhood, were such that when this individual utilized this vehicle to commit further acts of prostitution or lewdness or assignation, he and the vehicle were committing the nuisance conduct. The vehicle was the container, if, you want, if I could use that word, I did not use it in the brief, and the conduct was committed by Mr. Bennis and the prostitute, and we have a record of the ongoing conduct so that we do have that. There's, there's not an indication that this vehicle was used more than one To time. impose a civil penalty on someone, must there be some uh, fault on the part of the person uh, against whom the penalty is imposed? Or can a civil penalty be imposed against a totally innocent person? So we are maintaining in this situation with Michigan's nuisance abatement law, a civil penalty, if you wish to call it a penalty, and it is in that sense. But you said it was. I'm just it, using it your words. It is in that sense because the condition, the use of the, of the vehicle to perpetuate the condition. It is possible to impose a civil penalty on someone without any fault. Of the person. Because of the absolute the strict liability of the law. Is, interpretation. is, is, is this, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm really uncertain. Is this civil or criminal? I, I, civil. Well, they use the word guilty. The statute uses the word guilty. They say if you do this, if you use a car that you've leased even, the car is a nuisance and you are guilty of a nuisance. That's correct. And, and, and so, and this comes up in a criminal proceeding. Um, how do we answer this question? I mean, I think it may differ whether it's a criminal punishment or whether it's a civil. Uh, uh, but they, it's in a criminal proceeding. I, I, if the, if the, would the person who ran such a car have a criminal record? This, this proceeding, guilty of Guilty of a nuisance? This, this proceeding, no. This proceeding was a civil proceeding. So that the final order and judgment controls. The court speaks through its order. The order here... The judge in this case say that, at least the, the, in the first instance, the judge in the court of first instance, that he thought that he had some kind of equitable power, he said, well, there might be situations bad enough that I could do something, but this one isn't so bad because I have a second car. That doesn't sound very criminalist. I'm sorry, what was your last word? The the judge in this case, didn't the judge say... He did. uh, If things were really terrible, I would make some adjustment here, but they're not so terrible for Tina Bennis because they've got a second car. Correct, the 1978 Oldsmobile. So the, the, the judge at least thought that he had some equitable adjustment authority, which doesn't seem to fit into the criminal mode. There was more to what he also said when he made that statement, and that was that in this particular case, because the part of the statute allows for deduction of costs and expenses, after doing so for Tina Bennis's $300 
interest in the vehicle, there would be practically nothing left. And then he looked to these other equitable considerations and said, in this situation, I am treating it thusly. Other situations, as the record shows, he indicated I, think, I might I treat I it another Just suppose we have a nuisance on land and an absentee owner who doesn't know anything about it, and that nuisance has to be abated. Does the, under Michigan law, does the innocent owner who didn't know about the existence, and the other one did, have a right against the co-owner for compensation? If it were a building at issue in the yes. case? Yes, they would. The innocence of that co-owner stopped the state from abating the nuisance? We could seek to abate the nuisance. Yes, it does not stop us. We could May I ask you another question? Is, is this just doesn't involve vehicles? Could it involve houses, couldn't it, too? It, uh, the law encompasses buildings, motor vehicles, air traffic. If traffic. a family found out that one of their children had smoked marijuana at home, could they forfeit the house? If the family found out? If the parents, I mean, say the state found out that a, a teenager in a house had smoked marijuana in the house. Could, uh, could they? Uh, could we? Uh, no, no. And the Michigan criminal laws would first uh, be applied, I think, to that situation. And, and they're such that uh, the nuisance abatement laws and the... the that would not be a nuisance and the, the home would not be forfeitable? There is a controlled substances amendment put into this nuisance abatement law in 1988. But uh, no, I think that would come into the prosecutorial discretion area. Well, I, well, I, prosecutorial I understand discretion. it. The, 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 even in this case, the court said that, that this car, if the same act had been performed in some other section where it was was not a common problem, it would not have been a nuisance. He indicated it that... Isn't, it isn't just that the performance of, of some unlawful act renders, no. uh, renders the thing a nuisance. It no, really has to... They, they, they really do mean a nuisance. He indicated that... the constitutional issue the same? Couldn't they do it just on one case at a time? We maintain in the Michigan Supreme Court they could, but they ruled that we needed, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, a continuing condition. In terms of the federal constitution, if, if, if Michigan can do this, why couldn't it forfeit a a house in which there was, they found out that marijuana had been smoked, smoked on one occasion. Uh, mobile home and the body shop in Austin, and they sought to do that, did they not? And there was just but a was, Why does it have to be a, just a mobile home? Why not a mansion? It could be. It could be. But under this law, that would not happen. Yeah. Why Only not? because there's a specific exception saying, built into the Michigan statute saying, this is not forfeitable for one puff. Uh, we read it not as that way, but the Michigan Supreme Court is... In any case, there's a, there's a bar in Michigan law, right. but there's no constitutional bar. Not that I'm aware of at this point, no. And constitutionally, it would be the same case if instead of $300, it was a $40,000 car. That's correct. The value is not it. It's the use that we're aiming at. And uh, as with Pearson Yacht, that was two marijuana cigarettes. Well, I don't, have to, I don't have to agree with that to agree with the rest of your position, I hope. Because, I, you know, there, there, there was a whole, in, in the old law of deodans, there, there was a whole intricate uh, theory of when, indeed, uh, the instrumentality was being used to commit the crime or not. And I don't have to think that the whole house is being used to commit the crime of, of one puff of a marijuana cigarette, no, do I? But under the Michigan law, we would not be able to proceed that way. Under federal law, I think you might be able to. And the reason, again, I don't want to come back. Look, I got a little distracted because what's going on is, is that whatever you call it, the person is giving up a lot of property who's totally innocent, and the reason they're giving it up is because it was an instrumentality of a crime. Right? I mean, that's basically the reason. Instrumentality of a crime. They're giving it up because a person used it to commit what was a crime under this statute as I read it. Is there some, what's the reason why the innocent person is required to give up the property? What policy does it serve? What purpose does it serve? What's the theory of why you are requiring them to give up this piece of property that is theirs 
when they themselves are innocent and have done everything possible to prevent its use as an instrumentality. Well, that's not a record we have exactly here, but I am. And I know that, but I'm trying to figure out the, the, the I'm, try, I'm trying to get my own thinking straight on other cases as well as this one. The police powers of the state allow them to go after all matters which encompass public safety, health, and morals. Nuisance conditions clearly fall within that. And if there is in the state, and has been sustained by cases, um, laws that allow strict liability for ownership of vehicles and the vehicle is utilized in nuisance conduct, we can proceed the way we did as long as the constitutional protections are given. It causes these people to be very careful whom they give their car to or loan their car to or whom they go into co-ownership with, I assume. Doesn't have that functional purpose? I think it should, yes. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to uh, begin by discussing some of the uh, issues that I believe complicate what's already a difficult constitutional question. Uh, the first issue it has to do with precisely what rights uh, co-owners have to control the properties, the properties used by um, other co-owners. That is not clear, and in our view, the issue of control is highly relevant under the uh, all reasonable steps standard that we propose. So if, if the, uh, uh, going back to the argument uh, that, that counsel on the other side made, if the, if the co-owner did not know at the time of, of acquiring ownership uh, that the property was likely to be used by the other co-owner for a criminal purpose and, and subsequently learns it, there would be no right of control at that point, there would be no fault, and it would not be forfeitable? The co-owner's interest, the innocent co-owner's interest would not be forfeitable on your theory? That's correct. At, at that point in time, although we don't agree with the, the uh, petitioner's suggestion of a, a negligent entrustment standard because we think that it, it, it's unrealistic to focus simply on the point in time at which the property is transferred from one owner to another or the time at which the co-owner's property interest arises. Mr. Seaman, where, I mean, as an, as an original matter, if I were writing a statute, I might well buy your, you know, all reasonable step standard. Seems like a good idea. But we're not writing a statute. Where do you get it from? I mean, where do you find it in, in our historical tradition? Or, or is it just that, you know, we, we should say, well, it seems like a good idea. It must be constitutional law. The precise do you find it somewhere in our cases? The precise formulation comes from the suggestion Calero Toledo. The, uh, and that from a dictum? In to, in, in, uh, and that is enough to... No, it's not enough, and we don't believe that that's all that supports the all-reasonable-step standard. Both the, the history supports the broad principle, in fact, that limits the government's ability to punish essentially blameless people by taking away their property. What history does that, when we've certainly done it with respect to vessels? That's right, and even as long ago, however, as a case like Pace versus Ware, Chief Justice Marshall wrote for the court in 1808, that a property should not be forfeited when the owner of the property lacks the means to prevent the forfeiture. Now, that suggestion of, of, of powerlessness to control the events leading to the forfeiture is different from the later uh, formulation in Calero Toledo. Was he speaking and of constitutional law speaking. or of equitable power to declare the forfeiture? He was speaking in terms of long-standing principles. And in Goldsmith, we upheld the forfeiture uh, of a conditional vendor's interest in an automobile because the, the, the buyer who was driving it around used it for drugs. 
That's right. And we see two lines of cases, really, one of which includes uh, Goldsmith Grant, Van Oster, and Claro Toledo itself, which recognizes that a property owner cannot avoid the forfeiture of property that's been used illegally merely by showing that she lacked knowledge or even reason to know of the illegal use. By the same token, there is another different line of cases, of which Calero Toledo is, is also a part, that recognizes limitations on the government's ability to punish people. Now, that actually brings... They do that in dictum, whereas the other cases do it in holding, don't they? That's correct. Rather a significant distinction. It is a significant distinction. The one exception I would note to that, and, but it's not a forfeiture case, is one, the one we cite in our brief, Southwestern Telephone and Telegraph Company versus Danaher, which involved the court, in which the court set aside a $6,300 civil penalty against a phone company on the grounds that the phone company had acted reasonably and, and there was no wrongdoing that Mr. justified... Mr. Stevens, one thing I don't penalty. understand is how you put together your test with your end result. Because it seems to me that in many, many, perhaps most marital situations, a person in Tina Bennett's situation could do everything within her power to do, but the law gives the co-owner the right to use the car whenever and however he wants. So I don't see how uh, all the all reasonable steps would work out to the disfavor of someone in Tina Bennett's situation. It, it, it may she be has no power over, over it, him. She could say everything she wants and it's not going to do any good. Our view of the result, I suppose, is in part based on presumptions about how the state law operates in terms of the degree of control that a joint owner op, uh, can exercise over another owner. Certainly, it would not be reasonable to expect a co-owner to do anything uh, that she didn't have a right to do under the state law. On the other hand, every citizen can take certain measures to prevent illegal activity that comes to, that they, they learn they learn about, including calling the police. And so, how it's is it not clear. supposed to make sure that her spouse doesn't use a car this way? It's it's very difficult to know in the absence of knowing more about how much knowledge or reason to suspect that use she had, which is, which is unclear to us on this record. In, in our view, all that she showed in the trial court was that she lacked actual knowledge of the illegal use, but she did not show that she lacked a, a reason to suspect it, that it Would it have been on. a different case in your view if she'd gotten on the witness stand and said this all came as a very a shocking surprise to me? I had no idea this was going on. Yes. That, that would be the difference. Yes, but I would emphasize in, in answering the question that it has a lot to do with the nature of the offense involved here, which is, I think, another complication. I mean, it is, it is um, reasonable to expect that a husband uh, who frequents prostitutes will hide that fact from uh, his wife and be able to do that successfully. But that may not necessarily be true if a different offense is involved, such as ongoing drug trafficking. And but in, in this case, your, your office has taken the position we should affirm the judgment of the Michigan court. That's right. Uh, despite this, 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 this very troubling question about the, uh, uh, the wife's knowledge of her husband and activities and her ability to do anything about it. That's right. We believe that the record, in fact, is unclear on the question of whether she could have taken any reasonable steps well, to prevent see the... See where we would go with it. Take the easy case in which she says, yes, I knew he was doing this. There wasn't anything I could do about it. He owns as much of the car as I do. What was she supposed to do? In, in that, I take it in your view, her interest would be subject to forfeiture on those facts based on that testimony. Is that correct? 
Our, our view of the proper disposition of this case is based Well, no, I'm talking about my case, the one in which he takes the stand and says, I knew he was doing it, but I didn't have any right to stop him from using the car, and let's, let's further assume that as a co-owner in Michigan, she didn't. No, I'm the, sorry, that's not our position. It, it is our position that even if uh, a, a, an owner has knowledge of uh, ongoing re uh, unlawful activity um, with regard to her own property, um, it still remains, it can make out the defense by showing that she took all reasonable steps to prevent it. Well, does, is, is right to control the touchstone for determining what is reasonable? It certainly is one of the foundations. Anything that one doesn't have a right to do... Okay, you're, you're not taking the position, say, in, in the case that I put, the wife says I knew and so on. You're not taking the position that she was supposed to call the police and say, you better watch out for such and such a car because my husband is, is engaging in illegal acts in it. Is that, you're not taking um, that position, are you? Or are you? No, not exactly. Our position is it, it, it is, it is not our position that if you know, you lose. On the other hand... When but you're not taking the position that she affirmatively had to call the police. Now, you're, you're saying that control is very significant. What else is... What's in the middle between these two extremes? Well, I'd, I'd say there are two elements. Besides control, the other element is the extent to which the person knows or has reason to know that her property is being used illegally. I mean, it is true yeah, but that... that in, gets us back to the control issue. She, on my hypo hypothesis, she knows beyond a peradventure of a doubt that she can't control the car, and you, I think you're saying she is not required to call the police. What else should we look at to determine whether she has taken every reasonable step to preserve her innocence for constitutional purposes? On that point, I, we, we would expect uh, property owners to notify the police if they know that the property is being... So it's the police. position of the Solicitor General's office that wives should call the police yeah. when their husbands are uh, using prostitutes? Not in every case, but it is certainly one... <laughs> Don't, don't let the laughter of clerks who have never even argued a case in a municipal court deter you from your answer. Thank you. One, what's reasonable depends on the circumstances of every case, and it's easier to understand my answer, I think, in, in the fact situation that comes up all too frequently, I'm sorry to say, in federal cases where the husband is uh, dealing drugs, using the car or the house to deal the drugs, and the wife has knowledge of that. And in those cases, the federal government does indeed take the position that the wife is obligated in order to protect her property interests, in order to be able to assert an innocent owner defense, to notify the police. Now, there are steps short of that that a wife may very well decide to take. Thank you, Mr. Seaman. The case is submitted.